I really feel truly like I will die fighting for this earth. And I have that type of fiery passion. Well, that's fueled by like this sacred rage. And even though I have a lot of that in me, I also feel like as a collective right now, we are all exhausted and traumatized by what's happening on this planet that I think we all also need a lot of softness, compassion, forgiveness of ourselves and of each other. It's, yeah, it's like in, in the interviews, it's this balance of stoking the sacred rage and, and, and being pissed, like definitely being pissed and calling people out, but also knowing that people need softness and like how to integrate that all is, you know what? It's like something that I work on every day and I have not figured it out. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Ayana Young protector of wild nature and host of the podcast For the Wild, a show that examines and champions intersectional environmental and social justice, deep ecology, and land-based restoration, with topics like the future history of water, queering permaculture, unruly beauty, the divine time of fungal evolution, the violence of globalization, and much more. We talked about capitalism, Occupy Wall Street, why she lives off the grid, how that works with being an activist and media producer, how she curates her guests and creates episodic structure within For the Wild, and her thoughts on the future of humanity. It's a really cool interview with the host of one of my favorite podcasts, so let's get into it. But first, this. Move like the ocean, sit like a mountain. Take the first step on a leading-edge path to transform your body, heart, and spirit. Zuza and Scott Engler guide conscious movement, body-based inquiries of gestalt practice, and stillness within nature to bring you to your authentic, luminescent, and radically alive version of you. It's happening at Esalen August 27th to 29th. Sign up now at esalen.org workshops. And now, here's my conversation with Ayana Young. Ayana Young, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Oh, Sam, it is such a pleasure to be with you right now. So happy to be connecting and to be in deep conversation together. Mm, so Ayana, I, I, I want to describe your podcast for the wild for my listeners because it's the podcast I most admire in the world today. But I think that to ground this conversation, can you please tell me where you are and where we're having this conversation from today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. It'd be my joy to describe the land which I'm sitting on. Um, so I am actually on the side of the road in rural Alaska. To be exact, I'm outside of the town of Haines, Alaska on the Klahini River in this incredible valley, the Chilkat Valley. And what brought me up here was definitely divine intervention. <laughs> I happen to be living quite raw, <laughs> uh, when, and what I mean by that is no service, no internet, no electricity, no running water, and that's why I had to come to the side of the road to call you, but I happen to be living and sleeping and breathing across from a proposed massive old growth logging and mining operation in this wholly intact valley. And I go to sleep and wake up with the sound of helicopters flying into glacial ice fields to explore six to 14 mining sites that are upstream of a river that still has all five species of salmon running to her. And the densest population of bald eagles left in the world, extremely healthy populations of grizzlies and brown bear, and all sorts of other flora, fauna, and fungi. It's actually the most biodiverse place in Alaska. So um, <laughs> the land has definitely called me, and I can't turn away from this threat of extraction that's obviously everywhere in the world. But when it comes for the last intact places left, knowing how rare they are, there's a fire that starts in me that I can't ignore. And so I am looking directly into it and working with folks on the ground to make sure that this doesn't happen. And so I'm feeling really, uh, really guided by the land in this moment. And I'm really happy we're having this conversation from this place. Wow, I feel doubly honored that you've taken out the time to, to speak with us for this occasion, for this interview. 
you've described for the wild your podcast as an anthology of the Anthropocene. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Ooh, yeah. Well, I remember when I learned of the word Anthropocene, and I think this was maybe eight years ago, somewhere around there, maybe a decade. And it spoke to this feeling, this intuition that I knew, but I didn't have words for. And for those of us who are listening who have never heard that word, it is describing the epoch, this time frame that we're in. And I think that the Anthropocene directly means the time of human or man. And other folks know of it as this, uh, the sixth mass extinction. And so right now, along with climate change, we are losing species at an unprecedented rate. We're losing up to 200 species a day. It's so heartbreaking to share this news. I don't mean to just throw these words out as if they have no grief behind them, because of course they do. And it's very intense to be in this place that um, still has so much left, but is so wholly threatened. About a decade ago, I was in a place where I was learning about the complexity of this time and all of these intersecting issues that we're facing. And I was thinking to myself, well, an anthology of the Anthropocene, this is really what this, this archive, this library is that I've been putting together with some amazing folks over the past few years is is really talking about this time and the intersecting issues and really diving into the complexity, even though sometimes it's hard and it's scary and it's complicated and it's confusing and it's all of the things, but that is what this time is asking of us, I think, is to sit in the overwhelm and to navigate through it together. At the, at the time before the podcast, I was really completely almost floored with just how do I, how how do I move forward who do I talk to and you know just to also preface 10 years ago climate change and the anthropocene and social environmental and climate justice they weren't topics that were readily available on every instagram account or ma- major news outlet you know this was more fringe and so i was really looking like who are the elders who are the leaders who are the philosophers, the spiritual guides that are really speaking truth to this time. They're not just kind of brushing it off like, oh, it's all going to be okay or, or undermining it. But they also weren't just sitting in the grief without knowing how, how to be activated to work through it. And so it was born out of this personal need, really, to be able to speak to people that I could trust and say, Hey, here are this, you know, here's my unwavering heart. (laughs) How do we learn through this together? And honestly, every week, every episode of the podcast, I am, and this is what I think I started in 2014. So um, years later, every, every episode, I am still molded and shifted and guided and challenged to show up differently. And I love being malleable. And I love being soft with that beginner's mind and never feeling like I know anything, but I'm willing to sit in the complexity and continue to learn with others. Yeah, I'm so grateful for it still. Mm, Yes, I'd love to talk with you a bit about this kind of intersectional tapestry that you weave with your show, because key topics of For the Wild include the struggle to protect wild nature and ecological renewal there's also food and farming. There's the healing from the disconnect furthered by consumer culture, human supremacy, global tourism, more. And I think one of the great strengths of your show is how you connect these concerns so skillfully. So can you speak a little bit about how you create episodic structure for For the Wild? Oh, gosh, that is such a good question. Um, Well, I do want to say a lot of it is based off intuition and feeling. (laughs) And um, it's hard to put structure to that. But there's this sense that I definitely had this sense when I was younger, but I didn't know how to put words to it, that something isn't right here. And when I look around and I think, well, we can't just talk about 
the food, we can't just speak about one issue and feel complete. Although I also want to preface that by saying that I don't think that everybody needs to somehow be an expert or somehow work on every single issue. It's not possible. And it's, it's asking way too much of us as these little humans that we are. So I think it's, it's important to expand our understanding of so many different topics because then we can come to what our passion is with a lot more compassion and a more holistic lens of what we're dealing with. And so part of the reason why I strive for such intersectionality is because I want our work and our life to be informed by many different struggles and many different visions for a way forward. Because I think that gives each of us individually a stronger sense of self and a stronger sense of our larger communities to know how to show up. So yeah, the structures, definitely some of it is, you know, when you start to follow different threads, um, I think all of us do this, especially with the internet, and you start to read about gosh, anything these days. And then you pull that thread a little bit more and you go, oh my gosh, it's connected to this. Oh, oh my gosh, it's connected to this. Oh, oh. And you keep going. Like I remember doing episodes on one, particularly on wildlife poaching and goodness, like I may have gone into that thinking wildlife poaching, that the foundation of wildlife poaching was one thing, but I pulled on the thread and I was like, oh no, this is so much bigger than what I even thought it was. And so then, of course, like, then I want to explore how impact is created. So, yeah, I think that part of the structures and part of how I find the topics is through my own interest, through pulling on threads, through meeting people, through other people that I interview. I also work with an incredible group of people who bring topics and guests to the table that I may have never bumped into. Yeah, I'm just grateful for all the different folks um, and all the different ways that topics come to us because I, yeah, I I think personally, it has definitely shaped my activism in such a huge way. And I hope that for the folks listening, that not every episode needs to be their rallying cry, but if they can allow it to shape how they show up in their lives, I think it can really benefit all of us. Mm, yeah, that's really helpful to to hear. And I'm I'm curious too to hear a bit of your your backstory, how you came to this work, and and touching upon your educational path as well, just so to kind of better understand how you came to identify these principal concerns. Because I can see, obviously, like our ecological life is is so threatened, but the ways that you've been able to weave in things like capitalism into the the natural world to me speaks to kind of this ability to to zoom out and gain perspective so i'm curious about your your path <laughs> yeah gosh the capitalism question or the, the theme of capitalism and destruction is just honestly it's like you can't get away from it <laughs> whatever you're talking about just to say capitalism is so uh, embedded in all of these struggles In a sense, all of our episodes actually deal with capitalism. It's kind of hard to find one for the wild episode that doesn't uh, relate back to the structure of capitalism and how that literally impacts everything globally, ecologically, socially, climate, whether we're talking about whales or whether we're talking about glaciers or whether we're talking about refineries or you really can't get away from capitalism because it has, in a sense, engulfed all of us. There was an episode with Tyson Yankapoda on unbranding the mind. And it talks a lot about capitalism and the movement and indigenous leadership and unbranding the mind. And honestly, everything we are seeing around branding is based off of capitalism. Like where before we could be a person, but now we need to be a brand. You know, just even that in and of itself, like we are losing in a sense, our humanity and even we're losing even ways on how to connect with each other without having to sell something to each other. And I think that in and of itself is just one small example, but it's actually a very large example that I think 
has really encompassed a lot of our culture, especially in the United States right now. I also think about the episode with Teokas and Ghost Horse on the power of humility. Capitalism really strips us of even desiring humility. Having a healthy relationship and being in right relationship with the earth really needs us to be humble. But capitalism doesn't want us to be humble because capitalism is in a sense this postmodern way of being. There is no truth in capitalism other than endless growth. It's not, um, the truth isn't about how to be a good person or how to take care of one another or how to uh, take care of our earth. It's actually like capitalism is, is, has this ecocidal tendency because what it cares most about is numbers growing, dollars growing. And I think about like, who are the heroes of capitalism? And for some reason, I have this image of Leonardo DiCaprio playing that role in the, the Wolf on Wall Street. I don't remember the film. I don't even know if I watched the whole thing. But I think about that time in the 1980s where it was just like the, the hero was this white businessman in New York City who was just screwing people over left and right to make as much money as possible as quickly as possible. And that is, in a sense, like our culture, how people are striving for wealth and what does celebrity even show us celebrity the celebrity world for the most part is like you know private jets and yachts and diamonds and all this stuff it's like well let's go back to the power of humility i mean one thing i think about is the, this you know the sickness is the word we to go which has been brought up in a few of my episodes um what i'm thinking about with ariel durange and she speaks about this this we to go the algonquin term for the cannibalistic mind virus which in a sense is capitalism. Sometimes I, I ask like, how are we even able to do what we're doing right now as a collective? How are we even allowing this destruction to happen every day? You know, the word ecocide is like killing your own home, which is, is what this overculture, this dominant culture, this capitalistic colonial culture is. It is an ecocidal culture. It is a death culture. And I ask myself, how are we allowing this to happen? And I think this term, this we to go, this, this cannibalistic mind virus, like we have been in, infected by a type of virus, a type of um, addiction that is so powerful that we can't, or we can, but it is challenging to touch the power of humility when the addiction takes us over. And so the Teokas and Ghost Horse interview, going back to that, is so important to me because it brings us back. It brings me back to remembering what the antidote, what the cure is for we to go. We probably are all on a spectrum of this addiction and there are ways of healing ourselves and each other, but it is a practice and it is a practice that I practice every day. I'm not saying, Hey, everybody has to live off the grid. And if you live with electricity, you're bad or something like, no, not at all. Because honestly, I'm as complicit as anybody. I am not, I haven't figured it out just because I live off the grid doesn't make me a better person in my book. I'm just trying to find what feels healing. Honestly, when I went to undergrad in, in college, I, I wasn't studying environmentalism or science or anything. I was actually really immersed in the humanities. I was studying theology, philosophy, and art history. I went to a Jesuit university and I was not raised, I was raised secular. So I was not raised with any type of religious background, but I actually had to take, I had to take courses in theology for, you know, that was just required. So I remember sitting in my first class intro to the New Testament with a, with a wonderful professor, Dr. David Sanchez, he really allowed me to be my full self in that class. And I remember being like what, that person in class who was raising their hands, saying all the radical things and being the rouser. And he really allowed me to do that. And I was so fascinated with the Bible. I was like, oh my gosh, I never read the Bible. I didn't know any of the stories. So for me, I was like this book that has changed humanity so drastically. I want to understand this. I want to understand human history. I want to understand art. I want to understand what moves people. I want to understand what controls people. 
So my undergrad was really this exploration of power and control and spirituality and history of, of the humanities. I remember, I think, you know, my, I don't know, and it's not called the dissertation. I forgot, like my thesis at the end was um, the fetishization of the art market because I went into studying art being like, art, this is so cool. And then I was like, wait a minute. Why is it that every time I go into a museum, Bank of America, Chase Bank, J- mm-hmm. you know, um, Merrill Lynch, why are these the names on the wall of this cathedral-like building that has art in it? Why are these the artists that are chosen? And how is capitalism infusing culture? And so I, even then, like, I wasn't connecting, you know, I, I, I think, you know, th- those were some of the these moments, these enlightenment moments for me around how capitalism and power and control really uh, mold and, sh- and, and, and how we can form our culture to it. I, and in all this time, like I was like into recycling, you know, like I was into thinking about organic foods. I didn't understand what I understand now. Like it was very much baby Ayana just grasping at these different topics and kind of like, whoa, this is, oh my gosh, you know, like being shocked and kind of intrigued to continue to go deeper. I did care about the earth in a very different way than I care about it now, but I cared enough to think, oh, you know what? Like I want to go to grad school for environmental studies. And I got into Columbia and a university in New York city. Honestly, the reason I even wanted to get into Columbia is because I wanted to move to New York city. And so I was like, okay, well, if I, if I go there, like I could do this. And I was kind of, so I, it wasn't even like really my dream. It was like going to an Ivy league grad school. Wasn't even it for me. It was really being in the city. And I went there and I remember, you know, and no shade to incredible teachers there, but the classes I was taking, I was like, what is this? I'm like, is this, this is clearly not the full story. And I was finding myself kind of being bored, to be honest. Like I wasn't, it wasn't intersectional and we weren't talking about indigenous sovereignty and we weren't talking about how social justice was directly related to ecological destruction. Like, and so I, and I, even though I didn't know it fully, I knew something was missing and I wasn't really getting it. Divine intervention happened and Occupy Wall Street was born. So within the first week I rode my bike down there with my little pup, Mushy Bear, and it was Zuccotti Park was very alive, but it wasn't crowded at that point. And I met this guy who was camping down there with his rainbow hair and, you know, definitely living like the dumpster diving anarchist life. And I was like, whoa, you know, and I, I was just so enraptured by being somewhere where there was a community of people who were enraged and willing to speak out and willing to have hard discussions with each other. This, this guy, March and I, we, he got my number and the next day he's like, there's a protest at the, you know, I think it was on Hudson street. I was like, I'm there. And I think it was like one of my first protests. And I was just, I was just, I I was, I was, it's hard to even describe the excitement I felt. And then a couple days later, I was like, you know, there, there was working groups that were being created at Occupy, working groups around jobs, around, you know, mostly the economy. There really was not discussions around environmental issues at that point. And so I was like, well, let's start the environmental working group. And Marge was like, wait a minute, like, but what we don't, and I was like, but I kind of had this, um, just this fire, like, let's just try. I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I, I have this feeling that we need to talk about these things. So we started the Environmentalist Solidarity Working Group a couple of days later. And, you know, within a month, we were holding 100 people meetings in the Deutsche Bank lobby with security guards all around us. And we were mar- doing these massive marches. And that really, uh, Occupy really expanded my understandings of capitalism, of organizing work, of justice work of movement building, of movement history. And that was a really big missing link for me is how movements are built and how coalitions are built and how organizing is done between us so that we could make change. My life has never been the same. And I, I'll, and just to say like from Occupy, it was an incredible moment for me. And I definitely had many, many moments of enlightenment. I was shook to the core with things I was learning that I had no idea about. And then Occupy 
was dismantled by Homeland Security. And I had this desire to go to South America, which I had never been before. And this is when I was still traveling internationally, which I don't do anymore, but I, uh, I haven't for a while, but I, I went down to South America and I traveled for a few months to Patagonia. And just to say, like going back to my childhood, um, I also had never camped. So I wasn't like raised as an environmentalist, justice organizer, activist. And I also had never camped in my life. And so here I am like camping in Patagonia in one of the wildest places on the planet, you know, where my tent is literally being blasted by wind. And like, there's just, I'm dry. I had this little rental car that I drove from Peru to tell Tierra del Fuego. And I, oh my goodness, to be surrounded by the wild like that was so life-changing. And so I think the convergence of Occupy Wall Street with this political awakening and movement, uh, yeah, this awakening around movement building combined in the same time period as my love affair with the wild began, it was like, boom, you know, it was just these two worlds collided. Not, not to say I was reborn, but I was, I was, uh, I was just, I was ready. I was ready for something else. And so I came home and I started the podcast and my life was never the same. I just never looked back and I 100% devoted myself to the earth, to environmental, social, and climate justice. And it was probably the best thing that could have happened to my life as hard as it is to process all this information um, and process through all the feelings of what it is to, to dive into this work. Uh, I couldn't imagine I couldn't imagine spending my time doing anything else. We believe that money should never stand in the way of human potential. The Esalen Scholarship Program features awards of up to 90% of workshop tuition and accommodation, scholarship for qualifying travel, a convenient online application process, and a mission-driven goal to increase diversity. So apply today at esalen.org slash scholarship fall 20. Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit about nature and living in nature, the way that you live. There was a recent For the Wild episode, might have been a rebroadcast, but your guest was Padre Gutuomo, and he quoted Annie Dillard. And I think the, the quote was more or less, people who want to get close to nature maybe haven't thought enough about what that might involve. And I just wanted to ask you about some of the challenges that you have in, in the way that you live. Oof. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it ain't easy. I can tell you that much. <laughs> it's really, um, it's, it is challenging. I mean, I, in a sense, sometimes, although I curse the hardships, I also love them because they humble me in a way that nothing else can. They make me feel so human to have to try so hard to get water. <laughs> um, and and I'll, I'll kind of explain that a bit. So growing up, like I never considered how water got to my faucet. I just went to my sink and I brushed my teeth. I drank, you know, whatever it was like, I just always expected that I would turn on a faucet and water would come out. When I started living very raw and rugged again, about eight years ago, I, I moved out to a forest. Uh, well, it, it was a working forest or a um, logged forest in the redwoods of the north coast of California. And so although it had roads on it, it didn't have any other human development other than the roads that were used to take the forest down. It had regrown um, since it had been logged a number of times. I moved out there, no running water, no electricity, no dry space. <laughs> and I found a spring a beautiful bubbling spring that's like this, you know, round, small pond that just comes out of the mountain surrounded by ferns. I mean, it's really just one of the most beautiful sights to see a spring come, come, come out. It's like, you know, it's so magical. 
And so um, what I had done to get, or what I did to get that spring water down to where I had set up my tent. um, Well, it took me months, first of all, it took me months to even understand how to find a spring. (laughs) Uh, It took me months to even understand how to move water with gravity, to really understand topography, to know, (laughs) yeah, I mean, there's so many parts of that. Um, But then to learn how to irrigate it was a whole other step. And what I I did was I hiked into the woods and um, where I was living was surrounded by a lot of illegal cannabis grows from decades and decades of people just moving into the forest and growing cannabis illegally on plots that weren't theirs. And they would bring poly pipe and a bunch of, you know, not so great stuff into the woods and they would pipe out water to these sites, but they would leave all their trash behind as well. And so I would hike into the woods and I would gather hundreds of feet of this black kind of, you know, sometimes bare bitten black plastic polypipe. And then I'd put it back together and I would, you know, mend the holes. That's how I piped water. And then, you know, plumbing it into a sink and building a cabin (laughs) was a whole other step that took me a while longer. But I remember the first time water came out of that sink, it was a miracle. It was, it was like a total life changer. And I still feel that much gratitude for every time I turn on a sink, because I understand the amount of infrastructure that it takes to get water to any of us in any of our houses is a massive, massive project that takes a lot of resources. And even the water that I get that's gravity fed from a spring a couple hundred feet away it still takes fossil fuels because that's what black polypipe is made out of. So it's even, even living in the woods off the grid, getting water to my cabin is not a purely innocent pursuit that's outside of capitalism and fossil fuels. Hmm. So, you know, where I'm living right now, I'm living in a dry cabin, no insulation, <laughs> no running water, no sink, uh, no spring has been found right now. When I drive to town, I, um, go to waterfalls and I just put a bunch of, you know, used bottles that used to have juice or whatever in them. And I just put the bottles under the waterfalls and that's how I get my water and how I bathe is I, and this is how I've been bathing in California even for years is, well, it was bucketing water from (laughs) This really intense glacial up here. It's a glacial river down in California. It was a Creek, but it was bucketing water with a five gallon bucket into the bathtub and then lighting a fire under the bathtub. Now the bathtub has to be cast iron, you know, it can't be plastic or anything. So just beware if anybody wants to try this at home, make sure you have like a metal, I mean, it can be metal, it can be metal, but also make sure that you have something under your bum because you will cook, (laughs) you'll get burned. Um, so yeah, that's how I bathe is I just bucket the water in and I wouldn't use any soaps that would be disturbing to the water, or the ground, and I'd light the fire and yeah, like, is it work? Yes. Does it take like chopping wood, literally carrying water, waiting an hour to get the water hot and maybe it's too hot and you got to cool it down. It's like very physically intense, but I mean, up here was a lot harder because this glacial river that I'm living on is powerful. It moves it's 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 their own being and you kind of had to like get down this this eroding little cliffside it it was very hard so right now I was able to find a used pump (laughs) and I just got the plumbing fitting so I can just pump pump the glacial water and then my bathtub fills with this very silty water and the the bottom of it is is glacial silt that I scrub on myself you know in certain ways like I'm describing this and like I feel the pure romance of it like I'm I'm loving it like it is the most romantic way for me to live that is so raw and so rugged and so much work but that work is like the work itself is a type of how do I say it's a it's a courting dance with the wild like I'm courting the wild to live like this and they are courting me And we are in this relationship together that's challenging, but there's nothing else that fulfills me the same way. And like, my mom is always like, honey, please, like, don't live like this. It's so hard. Move to a place where, you know, you have electricity or, you know, that you're not cold. 
And although there's times where I go back to places like that and I'll be in an Airbnb or I'll stay with a friend and I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is so nice. This is so relieving. And I definitely am not, I don't frown upon people who choose to live with certain amenities. And I know some people really need those amenities to be able to live a healthy life. But for whatever reason, well, for many reasons, actually, I am continually called to come back to a place where I have to be in such direct relationship with the land in order to sustain myself. Yeah, it's funny because in California, I, you know, I, I've spent the last number of years really setting up an off the grid place that, that does have certain amenities. Like I have a cabin that now is insulated with a wood stove and a sink with water. And, you know, I have a garden that produces food and there's, you know, there's things that I've set up there that make life easier, even though it's still off the grid. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I am never doing this again. <laughs> but, you know, I'm eating my words because here I am and I'm doing it in a much more challenging place. And I'm doing it with a lot less ease than it was down there. But luckily I've kind of been trained. And so I know what I'm up against. And even though the mosquitoes are bad in NorCal, where I am there, whoo, let me tell you, the bugs here are a whole other getting close to <laughs> the hardships of living off the grid. It is, it is intense. It is like you either got, and sometimes you have them all at once, but the mosquitoes, the noceums, the horse flies and the black flies. And it is a, uh, like <laughs> how I get through that is um, definitely a, a, it is a daily practice of just being like, okay, they are swarming and I just need to breathe and somehow get through it. Um, but I'm, I'm in love with it. I'm in love with the wild. If I have my choices and my autonomy, I will always choose to be so, so rugged with this, with this land. Bravo. That was really cool to, to hear about that. And it makes me curious about, and you don't have to go deep into this or anything like that, but how one produces a, a podcast because a podcast is primarily technological. When I think about producing this podcast, I think about the research that goes into it. You know, I use my computer for, for the research and I like to like watch videos of people on YouTube. I like to like check out all the podcasts that the people have, have already been interviewed and I, you know, and all that. And, and is it possible to, to create a technological piece from within the heart of nature? I think if there's a will, there's a way most of the time. I think there is. I think it just looks different. Although I'm living like I've just described, I am still doing this interview with you over Zoom through a hotspot on the side of the road. So, you know, it is possible. Um, I would say it's just, it's just less convenient. You know, when you, when you're able just to like plug in your computer, you got, you know, your computer's charged, your phone is charged, you have high speed internet, um, you can, you can download and upload, you have, you know, access to getting a hard drive if you need it, like all of those things that I think is really easy just to overlook when you just have it around you, you're kind of stripped of all those things. So it's not that it's impossible. It's just that it takes an extra amount of work and coordination and honestly, just time. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because I do live in these ways, but I also am a technological person. You know, I wouldn't say I'm like a brilliant technological person, but I get by, I can I can create a podcast. I have a website, you know, I have social media. I also work with other people though. Like this isn't a one woman show by any means. This is a group effort with other people who don't live in the wilderness and they are just brilliant uh, women that I get to work with to create the podcast and the other media we do. And, you know, the, I also do a lot of other conservation work that I don't necessarily talk about on the podcast or even through our website. And that work also takes the internet because it takes a lot of emails. And so I am finding being up here as I'm supporting in the coalition building to prevent these mines and this old growth logging from happening. You know, the internet, even though it's a curse in many ways, it's also a blessing when it comes to organizing. And when you do live closer to people, 
like living in New York City, for instance, if you wanted to organize a rally, boom, you could organize a rally within a day. You could have thousands of people there. You could meet at coffee shops. You could meet at libraries. Like you have so much more access to the human resource. And we need each other to make change. You know, it's, it's hard because I think living like this for me is it's a, it's a soul path. And I think for some people, that's also the same. And I think for other people, it isn't. And they are more drawn to living in towns or cities or things like that. And that's also very important when it comes to activism as well. And so I just want to, I want to make that a point because I think it's really easy in this culture to get dogmatic. And to be like, no, like to be a good person, you have to do this or to be a good activist, you have to be like that or you have to live in these ways or you can't live here. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, like I'm not that is not what I'm about. (laughs) I don't believe in that. I think that um, folks who are living in places where there is more access to Interneting and humans (laughs) and organizing, that is like just so, so important. And yeah, I'm in a sense struggling through finding balance between being in the wild without access and knowing that I absolutely in this moment very much need to be emailing people very much need to be on phone calls very much need to be meeting with people in person in person because um, that is the way that we are going to stop this resource extraction project I'm not going to stop the resource extraction project or be a part of stopping it by just living in the wilderness by myself with no access to the outside world. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not living in the wilderness because I'm thinking I just want to get away or I want to escape. It isn't about escapism at all. I think there are people who do that and I'm not judging those people. There's many reasons to do things, but I'm not looking to live in the wilderness to, to quote, get away from the problems or bow out of society or the fight. So yeah, uh, yeah. That, that was probably a long-winded response, but um, that there's where my mind is at and my stream of consciousness around it. No, no, I, I like the way that you went into that, and I really appreciate you speaking to the dogmatism. And I, I want to ask you about your creative process and interviewing. I think of you as a, a really excellent interviewer. I don't know if it's if it's you or if it's the quality of the guests that you curate or the combination thereof. But I want to ask you, what do you think your superpower is as an interviewer? What's, what's something that you're proud of that you do during the space of an interview? I think what I, well, thank you, first of all. Um, thank you for that, that feedback and that reflection. Um, it means a lot to me to hear that and to be, yeah, that, that the podcast is being heard in those ways. Honestly, I think... whatever would make me a good interviewer would be that I care. And I know that seems maybe overly simplified, but I just truly care. And every time I'm speaking to somebody, my heart is, is with them. My heart is with what they're speaking to. I'm not just doing it for a job. I'm not just doing it just to like, you know, for whatever reasons we do things for, I know there's multiple ones, but I, yeah, I I feel like there's a lot of care and compassion, which also helps me be a better listener because I'm not doing the podcast so I can just talk the whole time or I don't, I'm not doing the podcast so that people can, so that I can get um, my voiced opinion to people. Like I'm really there because I want to give the guest a platform where they're uninterrupted where they can go deeply into their work, where they know that they are having quality presence with me and with the audience. And especially in a time where headline culture is so pervasive and fast media is just bombarding us everywhere we look. And social media is making us feel like we're expert on things that we have no clue really about. I think it's really important to not just clip guests on you know these short two three minute five minute ten minute clips when they're talking about things that are 
deeply meaningful. Like that isn't even respectful to the topics or to the people who have given their lives for the protection of earth and everything within earth. So yeah, I think there's like this element of care and compassion, listening and respect that I think is what I bring to the interviews that I feel honored to do. And I also have dedication to. And, and besides that, this work is spiritual work to me. This, this work is, is a, is life, a life's purpose manifested. And, um, I don't take it lightly. I'm very nourished personally by it. And I think that hopefully that all comes through. Yeah. I'm just, I, and I'm also very appreciative that guests take their time to share. And a lot of times the topics are really hard. In a sense, sometimes when asking guests to retell these stories, it can be re-traumatizing. And so I really think about how to interview people that isn't extractive in nature. Like I, I don't want to just ask people these questions that might bring up trauma for them just so that I can sell a a story to a paper and sensationalize it so it gets picked up. And I think for all of us who are in this inquiry and are asking people to retell some very intense stories, we have to do it in a way that that is taking into consideration that these humans that are retelling this are impacted every time they have to retell about an oil spill that has impacted their community or or, you know, I mean, I, the list goes on and on and on. And so I think there's that in it too, is like really how to not be an extractive storyteller mm. and how to allow the guest to really own their story in a way that feels as psychologically spacious maybe as possible. I mean, it's not, it's, and it's, I'm not saying that I don't ask hard questions of people. I do. But I am thinking about how that's going to impact them by retelling it mm. and what things do I ask versus what things do I not ask. And I also just want to say, yeah, like I work with some amazing people, one being um, Francesca, who I work through a lot of this. We work through it together and we think about these things. And so I have, you know, folks that we catch each other's blind spots if, if, if we're having one, um, and we really take the time and we, we try not to rush through the research or prep preparing for our guests because we want to uplift them. Yeah. Just not add more. Yeah. Just not add more on to their plate. That's already full. And we, you know, we're kind of all in that position right now. And, and just to speak to that for a moment, as much as I'm a fighter and I am (laughs) like, when it comes to this mine and this old growth logging, I really feel truly like I will die fighting for this earth. And I have that type of fiery passion. Well, that's fueled by like this sacred rage. And even though I have a lot of that in me, I also feel like as a collective right now, we are all exhausted and traumatized by what's happening on this planet that I think we all also need a lot of softness, compassion, forgiveness, of ourselves and of each other. It's, yeah, it's like in, in the interviews, it's this balance of stoking the sacred rage and, and, and being pissed, like definitely being pissed and calling people out, but also knowing that people need softness and like how to integrate that all is, you know what? It's like something that I work on every day and I have not figured it out, but I'm really striving to like, as we talked about in the beginning, like the holding the complexity, that's a big part of the complexity that I try to hold with the podcast is the psychological dimension of it. That answer brought up a lot for me. One thing that I thought of was just, there was this quote from a recent show of yours. I can't remember which one, but clickbait culture is tied to resource extraction culture. I think that's so true in terms of media. And, you know, those of us who choose to work in podcasts are so lucky because the nature of long form media kind of flies in the face of this clickbait, you know, nonsense. You know, if, so, if I have a conversation with somebody for an hour, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to get the opportunity to express their their full point of view. And I, I like that. I like that so much more than trying to write a five paragraph news article that just captures kind of the a shadow, really. 
another piece that came up for me from what you were saying is this feeling that I have when I, I look at the, the list of episodes of For the Wild that I've downloaded. And, and to be honest, your show sometimes depresses me. It's to the extent that I, I can't even listen to it. Like I have these episodes stored on my phone that I look at, but I won't play because I think like, damn, this is too heavy for this moment. I'd rather listen to a basketball <laughs> podcast. But yet I also find your show and your work inspiring and, and life affirming. So I can only imagine that you feel similarly. And I want to hear you talk a little bit about like living life engaged in examining these sober, weighty topics while at the same time figuring out how to care for yourself to ensure that, that you don't burn out, to ensure that you're living life as a, a happy person. So yeah, if you could speak to that. Totally. Yeah. Um, it's like one of those cases where it's all true, you know, it's, and what I mean by that is like, it's overwhelming, it's depressing, it's joyful, you know, it, it's creative, like it's all of it. And I feel like it's so much of life is like that right now is that there is no binary anymore. And I think so many people are shattering that binary of like good, bad, guilty, innocent, um, happy, unhappy, or, you know, depressed, not depressed. Like in a sense, I think we're all kind of feeling all the feelings just to say, yeah, I feel all the feelings. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, there's definitely days that depression sets in, you know, I'm, there are days where I am bawling, there are days where I feel heavy and there's also days where I feel like the, the fire of like, I feel like the power of earth is behind me. And so I definitely, yeah, I, I go in between a lot of feelings of like insecurity or confidence when it comes to what we're dealing with and um, how I take care of myself through this is one, like I try to let it be okay that I am having these feelings, not to say that I want to stay depressed all the time. Like, I don't want to stay feeling like, you know, I don't want to stay feeling bad. I mean, that's not, you know, I don't want to say just for productivity qualities, but I want to be present and I want to be, for me to be in the best relationship I can with the earth, I allow myself to feel what I feel. And I think that's important to give ourselves the spaciousness to do that. And I also think for me, it's not like, okay, well, I'm just going to allow myself to then be depressed all the time because then I can't really be engaged in the ways that I want to be engaged with my relationship with the earth and with protecting what I can while I'm alive. Yeah. It's like giving myself that spaciousness to feel it, but then also taking care of myself so that I'm not just stuck in the overwhelm of what it is that we're dealing with. And things that I do, you know, and they're pretty simple, honestly, like baths are huge for me. Like put me in a bath and I am (laughs) so healed. So I really give myself time for like the art of bathing to just let my body like (sighs) sink into warm water. I also being with the land, whether that's a tree on your street or a river, or the sky, the clouds, a sunset, a moonrise, a moonset, you know, whatever it is, like those things are, to me, what revitalizes me and what pulls me out of the feeling of just emotional overwhelm. Uh, For instance, I was visiting my friend in Seattle, and there are so many beautiful trees in her neighborhood. And, you know, sometimes I would be working, and then we'd go on a walk with her kids, And I would ask the kids, like, what are your favorite trees? And we'd walk down the blocks and we'd see these amazing, amazing, like big old Seattle trees or, you know, new trees, like new peach trees, which I was amazed that I saw a peach tree growing in Seattle, to be honest. But it was like, and the kids would tell me stories about these trees and I would just commune with them. And I would see people's gardens and like, wow, like people are just amazing with like these city plots and they're just overflowing with abundant plants and things like that. It's like, they're simple, but they're also so life-giving and it's important also to get off the internet. You know, there's times where it's great to research and to learn and to listen to podcasts and to really um, soak in what we're sharing with each other. And to me, it's like also turn it off. You know, I have to turn it off. I have to turn my phone off 
I have to just be able to go and be quiet and, and like really be present, like smell the smells, touch, feel, uh, look, like get back to the senses. And I remember uh, an interview with Bronte Velez and they say something like capitalist capitalism is predicated on taking away our senses. And so I think about a lot of sometimes the depression or the overwhelm for me is because I'm not in my senses. I'm in this kind of like forced intellect almost. And I need to really get out of that. And so there's simple ways to get out of that for me, going on walks, taking baths, talking to a friend, not talking about all the issues of the world. (laughs) Also, I really love food. And anybody who knows me well, any of my friends um, know that it's like, if Ayana is hanging out with them, we're going to eat a lot. (laughs) I have a real big sweet tooth. And I just adore food and I adore desserts. And so it's like, give me a piece of pie. Give me a, like an ice cream. Like just like, I'm kind of like a little kid in a way in that, in that regard. And I can go from like crying and feeling like the world is crumbling on top of me to being like, nope, I had, I got my ice cream. I took my bath. Like we got this, like, we're going to do this, you know? So I, I think it's different for everybody. But I don't, I think it's important to not overlook simple pleasures um, and really allowing ourselves to have those because I don't think that being in right relationship with the earth means just sitting in depression because of how horrible things are. I think also being in right relationship with the earth is about being in gratitude and seeing the bounty and the beauty. And, and it reminds me of an, another interview with Terry Tempest Williams where she says beauty is its own form of resistance. And that really struck me because, um, yeah, taking in all the information and resisting that, resisting this corporate capitalism, colonialism, there's so many ways to do it. And, uh, and I think that we can find the ways that feel best for us if we allow ourselves to tap into the creativity and give ourselves the spaciousness. And then the last thing that, cause I just got reminded of another interview, Trisha Hersey, uh, the, of the Nat ministry rest is resistance. Also rest, 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 rest. Like we need to give ourselves time to chill out and be off our phones, but also like closing our eyes, giving ourselves time to be just bodies where we get to take a load off and rest our bodies and lay our bodies down. And that is resisting capitalism. That is resisting resource extraction. Because uh, the more we do, the more resources we need. Everything we do in this modern world, to an extent, you know, even if it's good things, takes resources. But if we rest and we take time to really decide what it is we're going to put our energy behind and not just like willy nilly spend our energy and our resources all over the place, um, that is also a form of self-care for ourselves. And it's a form of care for the earth. And it's a form of gratitude and also like really not taking things for granted. And I think with technology and with how fast paced our world is and how instant gratification is, it's like we don't really feel the consequences of how much we can get done in a day. And that is not actually, I think, a healthy way for us or for the earth to move forward. So to to go back to the topics of the podcast, all the topics of the podcast have helped me realize these things. And sometimes what the podcast helps me realize is how to slow down, Mm -hmm. like the the conversation with Bioko Malafe on slowing down in urgent times, how to slow down, how to rest, how to have pleasure, how to be in better relationship with the earth, how to get back into my senses, how to have more time for love. You know, those are all forms of resistance in this time. And our self-care is directly related to caring for the planet, even though that seems maybe hard because the self-care industry has been co-opted by capitalism. And so it's like, (laughs) wait, wait, is it? But it is um, when you get down to the core So, uh, yeah, those are all ways that I take care of myself and how I can get back on the horse, so to speak, and keep fighting and keep going and keep being like, nope, like, you know what? 
I can do this. I just need a little nap. I need a little gelato. I need a little bathtub, (laughs) but like, then we can do it. Oh my God. Ayano, such a great answer. So I've, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I have one more question for you, if you have the time for it. And it's kind of a large question, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, if it looks like you've been studying this human existence of ours for a while and resistance, do you feel optimistic about how everyday life on earth will evolve over the course of the next 100 years? In your opinion, what's our best hope? Ooh, leave me the easy question for the end. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, goodness. I was kind of always like a person who was like, not really on the hope train. That word triggered me in ways. I don't have as much of an issue with it now. But what I feel, I think I can answer this question best in the present, and not so much in the future thing. Because the future I know right now seems scary for so many of us with how quickly things are changing and uh, climate chaos and the Anthropocene, that it's like, oh my gosh, like how, how, are, how are we gonna survive in a world in 50 years? And I, I, I know so many of us are bombarded with this fear of the future. Yeah, and I, and I think that brings me back to the present and just like what I feel enlivened by is being present right now and is being so engaged today, every day, in the struggle, in the beauty. And it's not about not worrying about the future because everything we do today impacts the future. But I think too, with science and media and human supremacy, we like to believe that we know how things are going to turn out if we do A, B, or C. We don't know how things are going to turn out. We never will. We can predict things, sure. Yeah, climate scientists have been right about some things and some things they've been wrong about. And I think that there are so many more powers and divine influences that we can never and will never and can't uh, know. (laughs) And there's a lot of relief in that. There's a lot of relief to me in knowing that we will never know and we can't predict everything. And knowing that, again, takes me back to the present. I can't, uh, I can't go Like, yes, I have hope that humans will be around in a hundred years, or if we only do these things, then we'll be okay. Or if we do that, then we can, it's like, you know, a lot of people have a lot of different solutions and predictions, and I'm not super interested in that. What I'm interested in is living to the fullest right now and learning how to be in this luscious, right relationship with the earth and with each other and with ourselves. And seeing how that impacts the future in ways that we will never know. And I think about Joanna Macy, who has been a mentor of mine and I've interviewed before. And I remember her speaking to, I think, influence. And she was saying something like, um, you never know who you influence or how you influence them in a positive or negative way for the most part. Sometimes you do. Sometimes people will email you and say, wow, what a great podcast, or your work has really influenced me, or I started a farm because of this. But most of the time, you don't know. And so it's like every day we can plant seeds for regeneration, for love, for abundance. We can plant seeds for reconnection. We can plant seeds for, we can literally plant seeds, like seeds for food, seeds for trees. And we're not going to know how all of those will sprout, but we can do that every day anyways. And that in and of itself is what gives me the hope, knowing that I don't know, knowing that it isn't about knowing because I think also our culture and the human supremacist side of our culture really wants us to know everything and wants us to have these outlines and wants us to have these plans. But I think getting out of that colonized mind is part of how we're going to get through all of it. And I think it's going to look a lot different than me or probably most people will be able to predict. And I'm so happy about that. (laughs) I'm so happy about that, that I really am just along for, I like, I am, um, I'm not the leader of what happens and none of us are. We can only be our, our, our one little self. And there's a lot of beauty in that and a lot of relief in that. So let's fight the good fight. Let's take care of ourselves and each other. 
Let's be passionate about what we care about. Let's not be afraid. Let's live while we are living. <laughs> Let's be grateful for what is here and protect what is left and regenerate what has been harmed. And I'm really excited to see what comes of all of that when more and more of us start to awaken to our paths in that way. Ayana Young, thank you so much for this brilliant interview. Your podcast is For the Wild. Instagram is for.the.wild. Everybody check it out. There's hundreds of episodes available. Um, Ayana, appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for your questions and your care and your attention. I really appreciated this call today. Thank you so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. If you like this show, do us a solid and rate us on your favorite podcast player. You can also subscribe. And if you like, email me at voices at esalen.org. I'm always happy to hear your thoughts. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Michelle McCrary and Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. Do you seek answers about the meaning of life or what it means to be happy from the broadest possible perspective? R.D. Lang in the 21st century, August 30th to September 3rd, is a workshop at Esalen exploring the practical aspects of Lang's legacy. This workshop is best suited for those familiar with Lang, at one time the most widely read psychiatrist in the world. His take on altered states, the nature of love, authenticity, and spirituality forms the foundation for workshop leaders Michael Guy Thompson, Nita Gage, and Fritjof Capra. Explore fundamental happiness through experiential exercises for modern life. Register now at esalen.org workshops. <laughs>